0: attenders. I'm so glad everybody's here. And if this is your first or second week here at Covenant, I'd invite you to fill out a brown card in the back. Fill it out. We'll get in touch with you in the next couple of days. And then also take a mug. These mugs are fantastic and we like to give these out to people. So take a mug as well. Well, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Ben Espinoza, I serve as the pastor of Community Life here at Covenant Church, and we're going to be continuing our series called Glory Promise, where we look at how the Old Testament points to the coming of Jesus Christ in so many different ways. A few weeks ago, I talked about how Jesus appears as the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, and how we see him in some of the greatest figures of the Old Testament as well, and how the Old Testament prophesies about the coming Messiah time and again. And last week, Tim Butler talked a little bit about Joseph, who really is a precursor of Christ. He's betrayed by those closest to him. He's falsely accused on many different levels, and he finally ends up the ruler of all the land. It's the story of Christ thousands of years before Jesus even walked the earth. And this morning, I want to zero in on one particular book of the Old Testament that speaks to the many different facets of Jesus the Messiah, and that's the book of Psalms. Now, when you think of the book of Psalms, your mind automatically probably goes to thinking about your favorite psalm, whether it's Psalm 23 or Psalm 103 or Psalm 150. And most of the time, these are our favorite psalms because they elicit an emotional response from us. There are psalms that are comforting and they're filled with joy. Some of them cause you to worship. Some of them cause you to cry out in anguish, and some of them remind you how God is so close to you, even in the midst of your dire circumstances. Remember the first Bible I ever owned was a little Gideon's orange New Testament with the Psalms and Proverbs. And as a kid, I would always pronounce the Psalms, Psalms. I'm sure most of you did too. And oftentimes the Psalms are some of the first pieces of scripture that we ever read as a kid and perhaps it's one of the most quoted books of the bible i mean everybody here probably knows the 23rd psalm let's be real and while we're tempted to relegate the psalms to the category of emotional comfort in god it's also important to recognize that the psalms are vividly theological they illuminate the character of god in vivid ways they remind us that god is faithful They remind us that God has a plan for our lives. They remind us that our God is a God of power and of majesty. And they remind us of just how broken we are, but how much God loves us and forgives us still. And perhaps nowhere in the Old Testament do you see Christ magnified and glorified as he is in the Psalms. He even says so. He said to them on the road to Emmaus, these two disciples who he has an exchange with, he says, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. In fact, if you were to look at the books that Jesus quotes the most in the gospel accounts, it's the Psalms. And if you look at the most quoted book in the entire New Testament from the Old Testament, it's the Psalms. So what I want to do this morning is just take a little bit of a a plane ride over the Psalms and how they point to Jesus Christ before finally landing on one particular Psalm that receives the most attention from the New Testament. But before we do, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we can come together and open your word. I pray that you'll open our eyes and our hearts and our minds to the different truths that you want us to learn this morning, Lord. Help us to magnify And glorify Jesus Christ alone this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So before I dig into these Messianic Psalms, I want to give a little bit of history about the book. The Psalms were written throughout the entire period of the Old Testament. From the time of Moses till the period after the exile. 72 of them were written by King David. While others were written by Solomon. And by more obscure dudes like Asaph and Heman and the sons of Korah. And some of the psalms may have been used in temple worship, you see, to the choir master at the beginning of some of the psalms. Some are laments. Some of them are individual laments, and some of them are corporate laments, expressions of sadness. Some of them are psalms of thanksgiving. Others are hymns or songs of praise. And some of the psalms are referred to as the wisdom psalms because they focus on the wisdom that comes from the Word of God, like Psalm 1 and Psalm 119. Some psalms, such as Psalm 69 and Psalm 109, are referred to as the imprecatory psalms, in which the substance of the psalm is a prayer against the psalmist's enemies. So the psalmist can get a little whiny sometimes, as you guys know, and he sometimes gets a little violent. Right? So you have a bunch of different types of psalms, and they're used for very different purposes, for worship, for lament, for prayer, for justice, and for comfort. But then you have a special kind of psalm that weaves its way all throughout the book. And it's called the Messianic Psalms. And they're called that because they point to the coming Messiah. And the one thing you have to keep in mind when you read through these psalms, and we're going to observe a few in a bit, is that many of them have a direct connection to the circumstances that were happening while the psalm was being written. But they speak to future events as well. You'll see what I mean in a couple minutes. So let's go through a couple of Messianic Psalms. First one I want to look at is Psalm 2. Uh, this is one of my favorite Psalms, uh, but for sentimental reasons more than anything else. When I was 16, I went to a Christian camp, and the theme of the, the camp, the conference, was Christian leadership. So we went to all different kinds of seminars and workshops in between swimming and breaking into the cafeteria and getting ice cream when we weren't supposed to. I was a rebel. My friend Craig and I went to this seminar on leading worship one time. And there were like five of us in there, a couple dudes. And then there was one, one quiet girl in the corner. We didn't really think anything of it. And the professor there, the, the camp counselor dude, he began by introducing himself to us. And he asked one of us to volunteer to read Psalm 2. So like a good little boy, I opened up my book and I'm just like, oh, I'm going to find it. But before I could find it, this quiet girl in the corner I hear her take this really loud breath, like, and then she begins to recite the whole psalm in King James. It went like this. She's like, why doth the heathen's rage and the people's imagine a vain thing? And she kept reading the psalm that way for like a minute or two. So we called her Psalm Two Girl after that. I think her name was Catherine or something. But anyway, Psalm 2 proclaims the sonship of the Messiah and his lordship over all. I want to take a moment to read that. It says, why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son, or he will be angry, and your way will lead to your destruction, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. It's a pretty hellfire and brimstone kind of psalm, but it proclaims the Messiah as the Son of God who is going to rule over this earth and challenge each and every one of his enemies. But blessed are those who take refuge. And you compare this with what you see in Revelation. The king returning to the earth to slay all of his enemies and initiate a kingdom of peace. This is the Messiah, people. This is Jesus. I'm going to breeze through a couple more of these psalms here. Psalm 16 talks about the resurrection of the Messiah. Listen to verses 9 through 11. This is King David talking. It says, therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices, my body will also rest secure, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful ones see decay. You make known to me the path of life, you will fill me with joy in your presence, with your eternal pleasures at your right hand. So here David's talking about himself a little bit, but it's a foreshadowing of the risen Christ. Now, one thing you need to remember is that Jesus didn't raise himself from the dead. The Bible is very clear. It says that God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. And that's what the psalm teaches right here. The Father will not let his anointed one, his Christ, his Messiah, see the realm of death or remain in the realm of death, rather. Psalm 22 is another Messianic psalm that describes the suffering of the Messiah in vivid detail. Let's do a couple of these excerpts right here. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Remember, Jesus quoted this verse while he was on the cross. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Remember all the mockers who said to themselves as Jesus hung on the cross, if he is God, let him save himself. But listen to these next few verses right here. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. These few verses describe the scene of the crucifixion in such vivid, illuminating detail. Hundreds of years before crucifixion would even be a form of punishment and hundreds of years before Good Friday. But there's more. Psalm 41 talks about the betrayal that happens to the Messiah. Even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread, has turned against me. This is exactly what happens at the Last Supper, if you remember. Remember, Jesus said this. He said, whoever eats the bread after me is the one who will betray me, Judas Iscariot, and we know how the rest of the story goes. Fast forward to Psalm 68, where it talks about the ascension of the Messiah to the right hand of God the Father. It says this, the chariots of God are tens of thousands and thousands of thousands. The Lord has come from Sinai into his sanctuary, when you ascended on high, you took many captives. You received gifts from people, even from the rebellious, that you, Lord God, might dwell there. Now these verses should ring a bell because Paul uses this language in Ephesians to talk about how the Lord has given gifts to the church in service to the body of Christ, to the glory of God. It also talks about how the Old Testament saints were finally released from their holding cell and carried up with Christ into the heavenlies. There's another layer of theology that we don't have time to uh, introduce there, but maybe in the future. But I'm not done yet. Psalm 118, the psalm that repeats, his love endures forever. Toward the end, you get this phrase, which served as a highlight of our uh, Cornerstone series last month. It says, The stone the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. Now what's really cool about this is that as Jesus and the disciples were sharing in the Passover meal before he was betrayed, most likely, chances are, the probability is that this was the psalm that they would have been singing during that time. Think about the symbolism and all the power behind this. The stone that the builders rejected was becoming the chief cornerstone of, right before the eyes of the disciples i like to think that as jesus revealed himself to the two disciples on the road to emmaus he opened up the psalms which he probably memorized and said hey yeah this was referring to my betrayal this happened you know it did and hey this was referring to my ascension which is going to happen really soon and imagine you were a devout jew growing up in the first century and you heard all these psalms as a kid and you had a nebulous of idea of what this Messiah would do and who he would be. Here you are on the road to Emmaus having a Bible study with this Messiah whom you grew up thinking about and praying for. Imagine how glorious of a moment that would have been. But there's one Psalm I want to dig into a little further, and it's Psalm 110, uh, which talks about the exaltation of the Messiah. In fact, Psalm 110 is the most quoted passage of Old Testament scripture in the entire New Testament because it shows so many aspects of who Christ is. Check it out. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That verse right here, see it? That verse right there, verse 1, is the most quoted Old Testament verse in the entire New Testament. Peter uses this verse to describe the Messiah's power in Acts chapter 2, and the author of Hebrews uses it all throughout the book to describe the power and the majesty of Jesus Christ. But my favorite use of this verse comes from the lips of Jesus himself when he's laying the theological smackdown on those Pharisees. Check it out, Matthew 22. It says, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? While the son of David, they replied, he said to them, how is it then that David speaking by the spirit calls him Lord? For he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? This is my favorite part. No one could say a word in reply. And from that day, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So Jesus says, look, your theology is whack, bro. Because the Messiah is the Son of God. And the Son of God is me. But let's read, on, uh, uh, let's read this psalm because it's amazing. It says, the Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy splendor. Your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's, um, from the morning's womb. Are you there? Good. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook along the way and so his head will be lifted high. So the idea that you get from the psalm is that the Lord's Messiah is going to be one bad dude. I mean bad in a good way. He's going to command an army that will take down all the powers of this earth. And if you read a little closer, it's as if the king is just kind of coming to power. He's ascending to the throne. He's declared the king. He's enthroned. His enemies are going to be his footstool. He's, he's given a scepter. His people declare their allegiance to him. He's anointed as a priest of the people. He has military success. And he's given a chalice to drink from. You can see Jesus Christ in all of this he's the king of the jews he saves souls he serves as the mediator between humans and god the father and he has conquered and will conquer all the forces of darkness he will one day have total victory over all of his enemies but this last verse right here is sort of out of sync with the rest of the psalm it says he will drink from a brook along the way and he will lift his head high. This is one of those verses we'd like to skip over because we don't really get it. We're just like, whatever, that's crazy. You do it too, admit it. And what some commentators will say is that this verse represents what the ancient kings did after a great military victory. They would take their chalice, dip it into the river, and take a drink. As if they've just done this great Had this great military success and they want to be refreshed and rejuvenated. But it doesn't say that that's what the Messiah will do. It says, Along the way, he will drink from a brook. Not after, along the way, he will drink from the brook. In the Bible, sometimes water means refreshment, but most of the time, it symbolizes death. Noah built an ark because a great flood was coming that wiped out every single living thing on the earth. And when we're baptized, the water symbolizes the death that we have to ourselves. What I think this is saying is that when the Messiah takes a drink from the brook, it means that he's going to taste death and suffering. Remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. says, Father, if it be your will, Let this cup pass from me. And we know that it was the will of the Father to let his anointed one, his Savior, his Messiah taste death before his final victory. But as this Messiah takes a drink from the brook, he lifts his head high in victory. Remember Genesis 3.15, to the serpent. He will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. Messiah's death will be the death blow to death itself, and the Messiah will be exalted above all. Check out Philippians chapter 2. And being found in appearance as a man, Jesus Christ humbled himself by becoming obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow on heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to, to the glory of God the Father. He will take a drink from the brook along the way and he will lift his head high. We serve a king who has humbly come to be our savior. He came without fanfare and without recognition. He was born in a stable to parents who had no clue what they were doing. And yet this is the plan that God had all along. And it's the plan that we see unfolding today. When we see death and when we see war and when we see terrorism plaguing our earth, We can rest in the hope that the Lord has said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Remember, all of this was written hundreds and hundreds of years before the time of Christ. And yet the Psalms point directly to Jesus. They tell you all about what the Messiah will do in the future. And all of these things find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. The incarnation, the betrayal, his death, his resurrection, and his final exaltation as Lord and King above all. It's in the Psalms. And it's made complete in the Gospels. Maybe you're here today and you don't know what to do with just this Jesus character. Maybe you're thinking he's a great teacher, a great religious figure. But I challenge you do a little bit of digging in the book of Psalms and compare them with what you see in the Gospels. I think you'll be amazed at how the two line up regarding the character and nature of Jesus Christ. And one thing we need to remember as we move forward into this Advent season is that glory is promised. It has been promised in the Old Testament. Psalms, Proverbs, Moses, everything. And glory Will be revealed. For thousands of years, the Lord concealed the plan of the Messiah while dropping little hints, little crumbs to the Israelites, just enough to keep them hoping. And finally, when the exact right time came, he revealed his plan in a major over 2,000 years ago. Glory has been promised, and glory will be revealed. The whole purpose of Advent is that we're waiting in anxious anticipation with the children of Israel for the Messiah. And we're here today, 1165 Haskins Road, and we're waiting for the same thing. We're waiting for the Messiah to come make his enemies his footstool. To get rid of all the terrorism, all the death, all the destruction, all the war that plagues our earth, all the brokenness and all the evil. And make it into something beautiful and glorious, just as he can do alone. And that's what we celebrate right now. We have full knowledge of Jesus Christ and all that he's done for us. We celebrate that he drank from the brook for our sake. That he tasted death so that we don't have to. And in his death, he's been given glory beyond glories. It's through his own death that the king ascends to the throne until death will be vanquished once and for all. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up here. And in a few moments, we're going to invite you to come up here and practice communion. The bread represents the body of Christ that was broken for us. And the juice represents the blood of Christ which was shed for us. And if you're a Christian, you're more than welcome to partake of this. Remember, all the king is sacrifice for you. And if you're not a Christian, I'd encourage you just to sit back and pray. And for everybody, maybe you need to pray. Maybe you're not putting the king first in your life. Maybe you're not serving the king as much as you should. Maybe you need to do business with God. I'd encourage you to come up here and pray. Just kneel down and do it before God because he loves you. Remember, this is the king that died so that we won't have to taste death. Glory has been promised in the Psalms and throughout the whole Old Testament. Glory has been revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ.